The following program is brought to you by the American Urological Association. The American Urological Association is accredited by the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education to provide continuing medical education for physicians. To learn more about how to claim CME credit for this activity, as well as to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, and Merck. Welcome everyone. I'm Mike Cookson. I'm the professor and chair at the University of Oklahoma, and I'll be serving as your moderator tonight. Okay, we're going to go ahead and uh, move on now with some of the learning objectives for the course. Our learning objectives in this 60 minute time, we will explore the latest developments in advanced prostate cancer with metastatic hormone sensitive disease, as well as metastatic castration resistant and M0 CRPC. And we'll be focusing on patient selection and identification mechanisms of action, side effects, sequencing of advanced disease, as well as imaging, and recent FDA approvals of some of those imaging studies, including the PSMA PET and patient outcomes, and where we have weave those in, show the guideline recommendations. Our objectives include though listing not only being able to understand the different disease states as listed here, but to be able to identify the approved therapies for each of these disease states and to demonstrate the indications, mechanisms of action, sequencing, and the immunotherapies, chemotherapies, and where androgen access therapies, bone targeted therapies fit in that different disease spectrum. And we'll be talking about sequencing as well as combination therapies. And I mentioned earlier, we talking about the outcomes of those treatments and, and how those can be evidence-based on our guidelines. So without any further ado, I'd like to go ahead and introduce our faculty. And so we, we have uh, two wonderful faculty members here tonight, um, Dr. Chad Rich. He's an associate professor um, and associate director of the, Univers the University of Miami Health International Program. And he's from the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine. And then we have Dr. Kirsten uh, Scarpato, and she is from Vanderbilt University. She's an associate professor and the program director there. So I'd like to welcome them both. We will now go ahead and get started with our first segment. And so we're going to go through a series of, of cases here. And our case number one will be a patient with metastatic um, hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Dr. Rich, would you like to take this one? Sure, you can go to the case slide. So uh, to illustrate the topic on um, hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, I want to present this quick case. Basically a 72-year-old male with a history of high-risk prostate cancer uh, underwent external beam radiation and then androgen deprivation therapy. Um, they were lost to follow up for a couple of years, about 12 years. 
and then presented um, to us with a rising PSA. And of course, we restaged and we got a CT and a bone scan, which demonstrated osteoblastic lesions in the eighth and ninth rib, as well as another lesion in the pubic symphysis. So that's the case uh, of metastatic hormone sensitive prostate cancer presenting after radiation. Okay, so Chad, really the first question that we have for you is how, how do you sort of risk stratify patients um, in this newly diagnosed metastatic setting? So, you know, when a patient presents you a newly diagnosed or uh, suspected metastatic prostate cancer, there are a couple of key things you want to uh, stratify them based on. So one of the first things is, is this a de novo metastatic uh, prostate cancer patient? In other words, did they present uh, the, for the first time with prostate cancer metastasized to the bones? Or is it a case of primary progressive prostate cancer? So with primary progressive prostate cancer, we're talking about somebody who's been treated for primary prostate cancer, like in this case, and then develop metastases subsequently. And you know, in the in the sort of two landmark trials of chemohormonal therapy, you you can see that in those patients, for example, in the charted study. Chad, hang on one second. Uh, from the AUA, the slide advancement isn't happening for me. So maybe they could advance to the next slide for us. I know you had something to show. Sure. Okay, go. Okay, there we go. Right, so we, we talked about stratifying based on uh, de novo versus primary progressive. And then we were talking about in the different trials for chemohormonal therapy, the proportions of patients. So if you go to my next slide, basically, thank you. Okay, so if you look at the stampede trials, this was sort of a, a mixed bag, but most of these patients were de novo metastatic patients. and one of the things that people consider when you have a de novo metastatic patient is, is this biologically different from a primary progressive patient? And you know, some studies suggest that yes, it's possible that they're biologically different than a primary progressive patient. And when you compare the trials, it's just important to keep in mind that in the charted trial, there were fewer de novo metastatic patients. So if you look at the proportion in the next slide, you'll see that whereas in Stampede, it was over 90% of patients, in the charted trial, it was about 70% or more patients that were de novo metastatic. So if you flip to my next slide, slide it'll show you that. Yeah. And then, so that's de novo versus progressive, sorry, primary progressive disease. The next uh, risk stratification point is to look at volume. So when we talk about metastatic prostate cancer, you wanna stratify patients into low volume or high volume disease. So basically, if you're talking about high volume disease, you're talking at four or more metastases and at least one outside the axial skeleton, or if they have the presence of visceral metastases. And then for low volume, it's less than four metastatic sites and no visceral metastases. And again, referring back to those trials, why it's important is because in those studies, like for example, charted, which had over 60% of high volume disease, in those studies, the patients with high volume disease tended to do better with our chemohormonal therapy whereas the benefit wasn't as clear in patients with low volume disease. So when I see a patient who comes in, again, looking at whether it's de novo, primary progressive, and the treatment volume, uh, sorry, the tumor volume, whether it's high volume or low volume. Can we advance the slide there? There we go, okay. So, um, so in, in practice then, you know, when you see patients with newly diagnosed disease, 
is that your kind of distinguishing thing, the number of metastatic disease kind of following that charted, the use, if, if there are visceral metastases, is that, does that influence whether you go with an androgen therapy or chemo? Exactly. So like, for example, today in clinic, I had a patient that came in, he had pretty high volume disease. Now, we as urologists feel comfortable giving androgen deprivation therapy. You know, I'm thinking to myself, okay, am I going to give this person um, Lupron and Abiraterone, or do I want to give them docetaxel, refer them to medical oncology? So as I was looking at the scan, I'm trying to, you know, figure out, is it high volume or low volume? And in that particular case of the patient I saw today, it was high volume disease, so I ended up referring them to uh, medical oncology for docetaxel. So I think high volume patients, you know, you kind of lean towards something like chemohormonal therapy because that's where the benefit is versus, you know, you can use, you know, abiraterone and enzalutamide, um, but other things you have to look at is, are they symptomatic? Are they not symptomatic? What's their performance status like? And so on. Let's bring in Dr. Scarpano on this to get um, her take on some of the agents that are options for men in this space, as well as you know how she would, would select for them. Thank you, Dr. Cookson and Dr. Rich. Um, so these patients are going to have combination therapy, generally with ADT, either an LHRH agonist or an LHRH antagonist, together with either a second generation antiandrogen or chemotherapy. There are a number of different agents, agents that are approved in this space. We have, um, as the chart shows here, abiraterone based on latitude and stampede data, enzalutamide based on arches, apalutamide based on titan, um, and then the chemotherapy, as we've already heard about from charted and um, stampede. And so choosing which agent um, generally as, as we just talked about depends really on disease, um, disease volume. But one thing that I think is pretty interesting is new data that came out about treatment intensification. And so potentially in this place for um, patients with high volume disease or those who have de novo metastatic, um, we want to use combination therapy based on new data from either Arison's or PEACE-1, where we see ADT com, um, combined with docetaxel and abiraterone, um, or in Aerosins, ADT, docetaxel, and darolutamide, where we see risk reduction and death. So triplet therapy may become the new standard of care. And I think it's worth sort of considering here too, um, in some patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer, we may wanna consider either radiation to the primary particularly in patients who have low volume disease. And there is a trial right now, SWOG-1802, about um, also looking at treatment in patients um, with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer. Yeah, th those are all excellent points. And I, I think you brought up you know, the advancement, you called it intensification or kind of triple therapy. And you know, we're not really sure how that fits into all the patients that present. And, you know, whether you hit them with all three at once or whether we're going to kind of layer it in based on response to therapy. But I do think we're entering into kind of a new uh, philosophy on how to treat them. And then, as you mentioned, treatment of the primary, uh, there is data there for the low volume patients um, in primary radiation, not there really for the high volume patients. And the role of surgery 
uh, is really trying to be determined in clinical trials, as you mentioned, and, and there's a SWOG trial ongoing. So as we talk about treatment intensification, Dr. Rich, let's speak to a little bit about some of the side effects, some of the most common side effects, some of that toxicity that is also you know, going to have to be managed um, amongst our patients. Can we go to the next slide? Yeah, thanks. So, you know, when we're talking about hormone therapy, as you all know, you know, two of the primary things that jump out for adverse events are cardiovascular health and then bone health. Um, so, you know, when, when you start somebody on hormone therapy, basically you want to get a baseline assessment. So you should do a DEXA scan and then you can, you can get a, a FRAC score, which is basically an assessment of the risk for fracture. Um, and then if it's high, you know, you want to consider starting bone target therapies, things like bisphosphonates. And then um, you can also use denosumab in those patients. Um, but calcium and vitamin D are probably the mainstay. So if somebody is going to go on hormone therapy, you want to start them on calcium and vitamin D. That's what I typically do for all of my patients who I'm starting on ADT. Um, and then in terms of the question about uh, cardiac health, so it's important to counsel them and tell them, look, you're at slightly increased risk of cardiovascular events, things like you know, coronary artery disease, even an MI. Um, you may notice a worsening of your lipid profile or you know, the potential risk of diabetes. So if they don't have a cardiologist who they're regularly seeing, you want to make sure to refer them to one so that they can, again, get a baseline assessment and make sure to manage their heart health. Um, interestingly, I guess one of the, the newer agents that recently got approved, uh, Relugalix from the HERO trial, that's the one that has probably a slightly better cardiac profile than the typical LHRH agonist. So that's an LHRH antagonist that's oral. You know, it remains to be seen if that's going to be better tolerated for patients from a cardiac standpoint, but there is some data to suggest that. Um, but again, in general, it's important to have bone health assessment and then cardiac assessment. And then as you're treating patients, you know, if you see that they've responded, or especially in some patients, I like to use intermittent uh, ADT, more so for patients who are non-metastatic, who are treating, um, because it, it, it may limit some of these uh, side effects. But if somebody has full-blown metastatic disease, you're probably not going to put them on intermittent therapy. But that's a consideration, you know, drug holiday, if they're responding well, if their PSA is undetectable. Yeah, I think... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I think it's a good point, just to, a, a good time to bring up a point about the importance of multidisciplinary care in general in advanced prostate cancer, but certainly looping in a patient's primary care doctor, their cardiologist, and if available, cardio-oncology for some of these patients who may be really high risk, making sure that we're providing the best care and have all of the patient's providers looped in together, and the medical oncologist as well, of course who they often help quite a bit here with the um, bone, bone health management. Absolutely. And, and, and as you both mentioned, you know, an, an increased awareness of, of the cardiac issues with these men, um, it's the leading cause or a certainly a competing leading cause of death. And just like we sort of became aware of bone health and fractures that were never coming back to us because maybe they weren't... Uh, cancer-related fractures, but, you know, bone loss fractures. We're now aware of the cardiac implications at baseline for our patients, as well as some of the treatment effects. And so um, getting that risk assessment and getting them under the care of a cardiologist in the proper management seems to be an important point. So thanks a lot. Let's move on then to our, to our next case number two, and that'll be the case of a patient with a metastatic Castration-resistant prostate cancer. Dr. Scarpata, would you like to 
set the stage for this one? I sure would. So in this particular case, a 69-year-old male was diagnosed with high-risk prostate cancer, and after counseling, he elected for a radical prostatectomy and pelvic lymph node dissection, which again showed uh, high-risk prostate cancer. He had negative margins. And subsequently, after a several-year interval, he developed biochemical recurrence. He had salvage radiation with a good PSA response. But again, after a couple of years, his PSA began to rise. He elected to start ADT, and he ultimately develops uh, metastatic disease with castration, resistant, castration resistance. And based on um, conventional imaging, he had um, retroperitoneal nodal metastases. So in this scenario, um, what factors would influence your treatment recommendation? And I, I think we can go to the next slide as she speaks to that. Yeah, there are um, quite a number of considerations listed here. So of course, metastatic burden, we're not using necessarily the, the same definition of high volume, low volume as we do in the hormone sensitive space, but certainly a patient who has high volume or visceral metastases may not be a candidate for some of the um, therapies we would use in someone who does not have visceral metastases. Um, you know, for example, I wouldn't use radium in someone who had visceral metastases or someone who had really high volume disease. I probably wouldn't consider Cipulus LT. Uh, you know, I think performance status is really important as well. Performance status um, may be attributed to the patient's disease status. And so potentially, um, you know, consider chemotherapy in those patients it may improve their overall performance status if they're having anorexia and failure to thrive related to a high volume of metastatic disease. Again, certainly wouldn't consider Cipulus LT in someone who has a poor performance status and probably might not consider enzalutamide either if someone's really um, doing poorly. Symptom burden. One of the things I think that's really important to consider with symptom burden is, you know, how What's the onset? How rapidly did the symptoms come on? Does that correlate with a rapid rise in PSA? In that patient, again, I might consider chemotherapy. I've seen patients who um, have pretty aggressive symptoms that came on suddenly, and then after they start getting chemotherapy, feel so much better. Um, but symptoms can certainly determine what, what a patient gets. Um, prior therapies. The general rule of thumb with prior therapies in, in this space is that we try not to repeat the same therapy um, multiple times in a row. So I might not try to novel hormonal uh, therapeutic agents back to back. Um, so, you know, for instance, if someone had prior docetaxel, then we might switch that up to an androgen access therapy and vice versa. Um, if someone's been treated with both docetaxel and an androgen access therapy, then offer them an alternative at the time of progression. Um, we can't forget about second line chemotherapy or immune-based therapies, um, which also represent um, changes or switches in, in therapy. And then genetic testing. Genetic testing is really important. It's part of the guidelines. We can um, do germline testing. So that's like looking for mutations that are sort of in all cells, things that we are, mutations that we are born with, that's a saliva-based test, or um, somatic testing that's taking tumor tissue either from the um, primary tumor or a metastatic site, 
and that can help um, not only with counseling of family members with the germline testing uh, or screening for other, um, other possible diseases associated with that mutation in the patient themselves, but then also um, looking at response to potential therapies in the future should they um, progress through novel hormonal agents or chemotherapies. And again, you know, when we're talking about genetic testing, I feel like we absolutely have to mention the importance of multi multidisciplinary care and bringing in genetic counselors um, for collaboration with these patients. When, when they're available, yes. Um, yeah. So let's, uh, Chad, let's, we're going to continue this discussion, but let's go to the next slide. I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what, what are the uh, mechanisms of action of these treatments and what are, you know, you mentioned some of them, Dr. Scarpato, what are, what are the agents available in this castration resistant space? So, so the agents that are, we as urologists are kind of more comfortable and familiar with are the androgen pathway directed therapies. So in that class, you have the, the androgen receptor targeted agents, and those are like the apalutamide, uh, darolutamide, enzalutamide, and these all block the androgen receptor. And then you have the androgen synthesis inhibitor, abiraterone. Um, so in terms of side effects, you know, they're, they're relatively easy to manage. So apalutamide, darolutamide, enzalutamide are somewhat similar in terms of their adverse effects. So like with apalutamide, you're more likely to get a, a rash or you can get a rash um, compared to placebo in the studies. Darolutamide, you can also get a rash. Fatigue is pretty common amongst these agents. Um, hypertension, you may see with enzalutamide. The one that has some folks a little bit uh, skittish is abiraterone, although again, side effects are relatively easy to manage. You give abiraterone with uh, prednisone, but you can still get things like hypokalemia, uh, fluid retention, um, peripheral edema, elevated LFTs. So, you know, that's something to look out for. You have to monitor the LFTs after you start them out, abiraterone. I usually do it um, every two weeks for the first month and then space it out to monthly. Um, and then also their uh, basic metabolic panel to make sure that they're not becoming hypokalemic. But again, if they're on prednisone, this really shouldn't, shouldn't happen. Um, and then the agents which we don't give, but we should be familiar with the side effects. So chemotherapy is used in metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer, like Dr. Scarpato mentioned. Um, main side effects of chemotherapy, febrile neutropenia, but our medical oncologists are very adept at managing those. And then the, the newer agents, which are really sort of unfamiliar to us, but are worth knowing and important for us to know and take home from this course. So PARP inhibitors. So PARP inhibitors are basically um, for patients with uh, mutations in homologous recombination repair genes. And these are like BRCA1, BRCA2 genes, and they actually um, have different side effect profiles, mainly anemia, thrombocytopenia. And in the studies, you could get myelodysplasia and theoretically acute um, myeloid leukemia. These, patient, these uh, agents are really used um, sort of second or third line after chemotherapy. And again, in these patients with uh, uh, mutations, HHR mutations. And then you have bone targeted agents like uh, radium-223. So radium-223 is an alpha emitting particle. Basically, it localizes to the bone where there's high bone turnover. It's great for skeletal metastasis. Um, the side effects from that are, are relatively limited, um, anemia, leukopenia. And then the sort of new kid on the block, which is the theranostics or lutetium, 
So this is basically a, a radioligand based uh, beta emitting particle and it's tagged to PSMA. So what's novel about this is PSMA is on the surface of prostate cancer cells. So with this sort of radio, radio ligand attached to it, it can localize to the prostate cancer cells. And in uh, some recent studies has basically been shown to uh, improve progression-free survival and overall survival compared to the standard of care. So that was very recently FDA approved. So that's lutetium. Um, the side effect profile from that is pretty good. Uh, again, fatigue, like with all these other medications. And then you can also get things like dry mouth and nausea were reported in the studies, but it's pretty well tolerated. Okay, well, let's keep on um, in this space, but let's talk a little bit about um, sequencing. And I know, Dr. Scarpato, you, you touched on that a little bit. And then I want to talk about some of the stuff that came out at ASCO in abstract form, because um, there is some um, additional things that are coming. But let's, let's go ahead and talk a little bit about sequencing in this metastatic CRPC space. Sure. There's a little bit of overlap with some of the things I mentioned before when choosing agents, but certainly you have to consider prior therapies. What agent were they on and how, what was the duration? Did they, you know, were they briefly on a novel hormonal agent and failed or was there, you know, a pretty good response with a long duration? Um, consider the volume and location of disease. Again, visceral metastasis versus not um, seems to make a big difference when choosing agents. Um, how symptomatic are they? and what are the results of their genetic testing. And so we have a couple of different scenarios here just for consideration. So if the patient has not had any prior chemotherapy and has symptoms, then um, you know if you, if you hit next, we'll get the, the answer there, but you might wanna consider chemotherapy in that patient, docetaxel. Um, so bone only disease and symptoms. So no visceral metastasis, that might be a good patient for um, Radium 223, prior chemotherapy, and androgen um, directed therapy. Um, that might be a good patient for cabazitaxel. So that's based on the tropic data rather than going back to another novel hormonal agent. Um, cabazitaxel was shown to be superior. If a patient has mutations and has been on a novel androgen receptor therapy, and maybe has received chemotherapy and failed that, then this might be a good place for PARP inhibitors. And that would be either our Elaparib or Rucaparib, which are approved in this space. And I'll just make a comment here, and I don't wanna steal your thunder, Dr. Cookson, if this is where you were going, but um, there has been, um, there was just recently at ASCO GU22, some um, level uh, phase three data on combinations of PARP inhibitors with abiraterone uh, in patients who had metastatic CRPC. And so, you know, I don't think that's necessarily ready for prime time, but that may be, may be coming. There may be some crosstalk among, between the um, PARP inhibitor and the androgen receptor um, and abiraterone. So we'll, we'll see. And then for patients who have PSMA positive disease and have been on a novel hormonal therapy and um, taxane chemotherapy, as um, Chad just mentioned, these may be patients for um, lutetium. Yeah, I think those are all great and certainly evidence-based and, and it's there. And I, so some of the stuff that I was alluding to, you know, traditionally, let's say you had a patient on enzalutamide 
and then they progress. And some people are asking in the chat, like, how do you define progression? And usually that's either, you know, increase in symptoms and or, you know, radiographic evidence of disease. I mean, certainly there's PSA progression that you can, you can witness, but usually it's based on imaging. The problem is now we're getting all these new PSMA scans and we're seeing things that we don't know if they were there a week ago, a year ago, or brand new. So that is going to confound things, but, but definitely historically, if somebody was on say an antiandrogen and they um, progressed then we would stop that and then switch to a different mechanism of action. And I do remember seeing at least one abstract at ASCO that suggested there was progression-free survival advantage to continuing the antiandrogen and then layering in that next treatment. So we'll have to stay tuned to see if that works. But you know, in the first generation antiandrogens where it becomes stimulatory, we, we saw a slight reduction in PSA, maybe even in radiographic due to that kind of stimulation, but I'm not sure that we see that with these um, novel antiandrogens, second generations. Do you guys have any comments on that or did you did that catch your eye? Uh, nothing specific to that particular abstract, but in terms of switching, one thing I was wondering um, from you guys is, you know, I, at one point there was a lot of excitement about things like androgen receptor variant ARV7 and testing for this and whether or not that can help you decide to take them off of like an enzalutamide or abium, put them on chemo or something like that. Um, I, I don't know. In, initially, I was getting it and I didn't see it um, being commonly positive. And then I just said, you know, I'm not sure if there's much utility to it in my practice, but I was curious if you guys use it, um, ARV7, to decide who to keep on hormone, uh, you know, anti-androgen therapy and switch to chemo. Do you use it or do your medocs use it? We're not really using it here either, to be honest with you, but I agree there was um, initially a lot of excitement about that. And um, no, I think our, our medonks here are, um, often will use enzalutamide um, first in the metastatic hormone sensitive space because um, a couple of years ago that there was a study that came out showing that patients who received abiraterone before enzalutamide I don't think I'm saying that backwards, um, actually didn't do as well. So enzalutamide first, followed by abiraterone. Another um, thing that I saw, and, and I'm old enough to have seen a lot of these drugs as they were introduced early on. So, you know, I remember docetaxel, very first time it was tested in prostate cancer advanced disease. It was in the really end stage CRPC, the survival advantage, like three months. And you know, we, we got excited, but it was only three months, but every time it moved back, then we started seeing, you know, advantages. And now look at it in the metastatic state where, you know, you can see 12 to 18 months advantage over just traditional ADT alone. They were moving um, the PARP inhibitors back too. And so we're starting to see some activity there. And there was an abstract that showed that some of the um, response was independent of their, um, their genetic testing. And so they didn't necessarily have to. So there was, I think, mixed messages there. So there's a lot going on. We'll have to learn how to layer in these sequencing. And, but I think we're gonna see most of these um, agents that have a lot of activity being attempted earlier and earlier. And then we'll, we'll see if that translates into survival benefit 
um, which right now most of that has, has been more radiographic, uh, progression-free in these abstracts that are coming out. Um, Can I make just a couple of, a couple of more comments about this just quickly? Yeah. Um, I don't know how treatment intensification will change, if at all, sequencing of agents. So if you're giving someone, you know, you're moving up that timeline, as you say, and we're, we're using more therapy early, how is that going to impact our, our subsequent sequencing? I don't know. And I think we need to think about financial toxicity as well. This is all very expensive, and I think we need to be cognizant of that when considering agents for our patients. Um, and then finally, I think availability may be an issue in some places. And I know particularly thinking about theranostics and PSMA, we have a big backlog of PSMA cases here. And so, you know, what's going to be available in this space and not Yep, those are all excellent points. I think we are going to have to move on. We can come back to some of this once we're clear on our, our timetable, but let's go ahead and um, I'm going to have Dr. Rich talk a little bit about some of the advances with imaging, and we've already brought it up, but let's go ahead and talk a little bit about what's available out there, uh, Dr. Rich. Yeah, thanks. So, you know, um, just like we've all been alluding to, is better imaging may change the way we manage these patients, and Fortunately, we do have better imaging now in the form of these PSMA PET scans. Um, there are a couple of agents that have come out in the last, I'd say, five, five to 10 years. Um, going back to the, the bone targeting agents, the first one was sodium fluoride PET scan, which is very good for showing you know, bone positive lesions. It didn't show you soft tissue. Um, and then you had the newer agents. Uh, choline PET was a very promising agent with pretty good sensitivity and specificity. And then flucyclovine was the newer one or the Axiomin scan, which came out. And these all had kind of like a, a, a sensitivity in the 30 to 40% range and specificity in about the 80 to maybe up to 90%. And they were good at detecting uh, uh, metastases at PSA levels that were relatively low, like in the one range. But when you started to get down to the less than 0.5 range, the performance of some of these was still not that great. And then in came PSMA PET agents. So the, the two main ones that came out were the gallium and this uh, Polarify uh, PET agent. So in the last uh, year, or I guess two years, you know, there have been an explosion of PSMA um, papers showing that basically compared to conventional imaging, gallium PSA is much more superior for detecting metastases. Um, and then similarly, the, uh, the FAT Polarify agent is, is much better at detecting metastases. And even better in terms of uh, um, sensitivity and specificity than the flucyclovine and choline uh, PSMA, uh, sorry, uh, PET tracers. And then, okay. it, sorry. Well, I was gonna say, you know, when, when these first came out, like I know flucyclovine, for example, it was um, hard to get the test initially because insurance companies didn't all buy in and many times, but it was indicated in a pretty narrow window for recurrence, but maybe Dr. Scarpato would like to kind of fend this one. What are the indications for some of these new PET um, tests, the PSMA PET agents? Yeah, there are really two indications that um, PSMA PET is approved for. One is prostate cancer suspected of metastasis in a patient who would be curable with local treatment. And so that's a patient who comes to see you and has, I would say, high-risk prostate cancer. So, you know, at least an eight, nine, or 10, and an elevated PSA, you know, probably above 10, and you're considering local therapy for potentially localized disease, and PSMA may change your management. 
or the second indication is a patient suspected of prostate cancer recurrence following failed local therapy, so biochemical recurrence. And I would add that the result is going to change your management. Um, I, I wouldn't order it if it wasn't necessarily going to change your management. Um, it's not currently defined among patients who have CRPC, and I think we're going to talk a little bit about that later, but it's sort of interesting what M0 and M1 CRPC might look like in a few years with this advanced imaging. I, I believe, um, and feel free to correct me on this, but no longer is it required to have a bone scan and a CT scan prior to PSMA testing, whereas previously it, it was. So um, I think what you're saying is true, I believe, based on like NCCN guidelines. I think they have taken out the need for that conventional imaging first. Uh, the AUA guidelines are currently being revised, but the reality is sometimes insurance companies, even for the most basic um, PSA recurrence, uh, are still hard pressed to approve these things. So you're right, there, we have guidance and there are some interesting stuff coming for that, but it always lags behind you know, insurance approval. Dr. Rich, how, how do you foresee this PSMA stuff changing, you know, how we manage these patients? Yeah, so to, to follow up on Dr. Scarpata's point, exactly what she was saying is, is patient selection for different therapies. So, you know, if you get somebody with what looks like high risk or very high risk disease, and you're not sure if they have metastasis or not, you're trying to decide on local therapy, you know, getting a PSMA PET, PET scan to rule out metastases you can select the ones that should have definitive local therapy or ones who need multimodal therapy. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, timing of therapy. So if you're following somebody along, the PSA is going up and they're on treatment and uh, somebody in the chat had asked, how do you know if they progress? If I have a PSMA PET scan and I can show that they're developing metastases, whereas in conventional imaging, I just see that the PSA is going up, then maybe it'll start me, uh, allow me to use therapy earlier. And then there's this whole, you know, controversy, I guess, if you will, between the M0 state and whether these patients are truly M0. Because what you have is now a much more sensitive scan and more specific that can uh, be used to put patients into the appropriate um, categories. So the, the whole Will Rogers phenomenon of do they fit into the right bucket of M0 and M1. So if you have a PSMA PET scan in an M0 patient and you've now found a metastasis, they switch over to the M1 group. And then similarly, you know, if you have a patient that is truly M0, then they stay in the right group and then both groups tend to look better. Um, so I think we're gonna see a lot of treatment selection uh, improvement and then using therapy at the right time at an earlier stage with these agents. Thank you, uh, Dr. Rich, for mentioning Will Rogers, who's from Oklahoma, that was, uh, and, and its implications in uh, kind of changing the staging more accurately and improving outcomes without really doing anything, but simply better testing. Um, Shows in ahead, Miami, right? <laughs> let's go ahead and move on to, I believe, our fourth um, case. So go ahead and put the next slide up. This is um, exactly what we've been talking about, a patient that has M0 disease. So 57-year-old gentleman who underwent two years of hormonal therapy for biochemical recurrence after surgery, he has a rising PSA and gets negative conventional imaging. So he's uh, essentially that classic M0 patient, but you could add novel pet agent and it's negative too, because they exist in that space. Um, so um, let me ask you, Dr. Scarpato, how would, would you decide whether to treat a patient like this and what factors might weigh in? 
Yeah, I think one of the most important factors is PSA doubling time. We know that PSA doubling time is associated with the development of metastasis. And so in this particular space, it is sort of used as a surrogate endpoint or a key determinant of treatment. And um, I, I think we're going to talk about some of the trials in, in this space, but they all utilized a PSA doubling time of less than 10 months because that yeah. correlates with risk of metastasis. And a lot of that was based on, you know, the knowledge that I think it was a denosumab trial, but there was a there was an understanding that if you had a doubling time that was in that less than 10 months, you were going to develop metastatic disease, you know, within the next year or two, and it was pretty predictable. And so these studies enriched for that target. So Chad, let's talk about the treatments in this space. I think you've mentioned some of them already. Yeah, we had talked about them with the uh, androgen receptor um, inhibitors, targeted agents. So the three of them are uh, apalutamide from the Spartan trial, darolutamide from the Aramis trial, and enzalutamide from the PROSPER trial. And really, there's no, I guess, head-to-head comparison with any of these agents. You can use them uh, sort of interchangeably in the M0 space. The main thing here is, you know, side effects. Could there be a little... Um, benefit for one in a certain patient population versus the other. So for example, the one that uh, stood out for enzalutamide in terms of side effects is cognitive impairment or mental impairment. And also there is this, there was initially this concern about seizures. So I guess if you have a patient where you're concerned about some sort of cognitive impairment or seizures, you may not want to use enzalutamide and use one of the other two. Um, or for example, if somebody you know has a history of skin issues and rash, you may not want to use apalutamide or darolutamide because those can be common side effects seen with those agents um, as, as well. But again, because the trials weren't designed to compare any of these things directly, you can't say that necessarily one is better than the other. It's just a matter of selecting based on the adverse events. That's a great point. You know, they're not designed head to head. Dr. Sarpato, when you were talking about uh, treatment and now you've got this rapid doubling time, what, what are the, um, how are the studies approved and what are the goals of therapy? The goals of therapy are to um, limit metastasis-free survival, um, or sorry, to increase, increase metastasis-free survival. You want to avoid metastases because we know that metastasis is associated with morbidity, but secondarily, and I think I would argue more importantly, um, after longer follow-up, these trials did demonstrate an overall survival benefit for the M0 CRPC patients who had um, we're given these agents with a rapid doubling time of less than 10 months. Yeah. So, I mean, in the, in the beginning, it was really a novel thing, this metastasis-free survival. And, you know, FDA knew that that was an important endpoint and believed that patients cared about it. But a lot of people really didn't, um, like medical oncologists, didn't really start using these drugs because they really wanted that overall survival benefit. And most of them thought, we were really just kind of moving it up, but it wasn't going to change the ultimate length of their lives. But subsequently, the, all the follow-ups in all three studies um, demonstrated that overall survival benefit. So that I think has changed, um, you know, that rationale and and a lot of people's desire to move that therapy up. Um, Chad, do you think that PSMA PET is going to uh, change treatment? How we know these people were out there before but now we're seeing things differently. So how, how would you comment on that? 
Yeah, I, I think, again, just going back to how good these agents are detecting metastases at very low PSA levels, I think we may see that space or that population shrinking a little bit because there'll be fewer truly M0 patients. They'll probably detect more patients who actually have metastases and are, and are more like M1 patients, um, and they'll be treated as such probably earlier on. So I, I think probably we'll be seeing less M0 and, and you know, it may change the way we treat those patients when we're able to detect those metastases earlier. Yeah. All right. Well, um, we're going to be winding it down here shortly, but I just wanted to let everybody kind of weigh in on any, you know, final thoughts. One, one of the things that we, we did talk about, but it's been asked in the, in the chat was like, what do, do we need a biopsy? And, you know, a lot of times um, whenever there is a change, so we do our genetic germline testing and let's say we we don't find anything um, now the patients are progressing through therapy um, in the metastatic castration resistance space I think historically we were sort of challenged to get a biopsy if we were going to look for a mutation there um, or microsatellite instability or something like that but now the liquid biopsy is out there and you can do foundation testing so is anybody using that in their practice or aware of the medical oncology team doing that and how that might impact treatment? Yeah, we're seeing more of the liquid biopsies here to help guide, guide therapy, for sure. Yeah, and you know, there aren't that many patients who have you know, that home run, but when you do find it, especially until more data comes forward, maybe saying that you can you know, open that treatment up even if you don't have a mutation, um, that, that's really what you're looking for. And um, so I think that's an important point. Um, we talked about the genetic testing, but really the genetic testing we introduced in the castration resistance certainly um, is introduced even in high-risk features of patients. And we touched on a little bit, but it's not just prostate, it's breast cancer, it's colon cancer, it's ovarian cancer. So, you know, we've broadened our questionnaires for that family history, ductal carcinomas, for example, and then newly diagnosed metastatic patients. Um, Chad, any other thoughts on this before we kind of move forward? I, I think because of the rapidly changing landscape and things like genetic testing, I think we're going to see more of it and, and we probably will encounter more patients with mutations or actionable, actionable mutations that hopefully we can treat with some of these agents and there are other studies coming forth. I think one of the things that we, we do more often here in Miami than maybe other places is when patients have met biopsy in the metastatic lesions and doing genomics because there can be some uh, differences after therapy and that may change the way you treat patients. We'll do like next-gen sequencing on metastatic lesions and see if we can target therapy better. So I think that's something you're going to see more of in the future as, as studies come out. So um, I believe this concludes our program. I want to thank everybody for their attention. Um, we know that you can go to the AUA University now and claim your CME credit. We want to thank you for your participation in this course and wish everybody a, a very nice evening and um, look forward to seeing you on another one of these soon.